Hey guys, and welcome back to another morning coffee. So, a little longer is passing since the last one. I was doing pretty well at keeping to the two-week schedule, but, you know, life gets in the way, and we had a few kind of hiccups a fortnight or so ago that just prevented me from sitting down with the mic. But hey, here I am, and, you know, the sacrifices I make for audio quality. I, uh, I'm actually on a week off from the day job, which is nice. I surprised myself. Had some holiday left over, forgotten I'd booked it off, and uh, yeah, just what a joy. Learned I've got a week off, and it seemed to make sense. Uh, this is my past self talking, because my you know, present self is ever clueless and generally baffled, but I had, uh, yeah, I, I had the foresight to book a week off before we took Extraversal Issue 9 to print, and yeah, just ran, and then oddly enough, it's one week we didn't seem to need it. Um, it only took us two only took us two weeks, but we seem to have incredibly got everything super organised this time. I mean, we've never actually missed a deadline. We think, to our credit, we've always gotten BPM, now called Extraversal. We've always gotten Extraversal out on time. But I just don't think we've ever done it with such style, I guess. Like, we're actually... It's all in the bag. We're doing really well. So... Uh, yeah, so we've just kicked over into March, and right like clockwork, everybody, our, you know, our patrons and subscribers, their payments have come through. We're now in that two-week period where we just prep the magazine, do the final kind of assembly of it, which is really Ali's time to shine, and then we we get we get it off to print. And I, I think we've said to ourselves, we will it will be going to print next Wednesday for a release to our subscribers and patrons on the fifteenth of March, and. You know, we're doing we're doing all right, and it's weird. We don't ever really stop to give ourselves credit, you know, because we're all horrible masochists and we're too busy working on the next thing. But, yeah, it feels good this time around. And also, you know, seeing the issue kind of come together, because I talked a little bit about it on the last episode and how kind of proud we all were of the shape this year was taking. And now actually seeing all the stories put together, you know, because the lettering's finished, so we're just kind of, compiling everything and yeah like i'm i'm really proud of it i still won't feel i still won't feel it in my head until we get that physical copy kind of in you know until it's actually a physical thing because we never do but it never seems real until you get it back from a printer but i've got to say i think it's our best one yet and i guess i would say that i guess i am biased but it, it just a, a lot of a lot of the stars seem to have aligned i know i feel from a storytelling perspective, I've really hit my stride with the episodic format. It's been the most incredible learning curve doing this, and I feel it's a very strong year for stories. Also, I mean, I was, I've was i been typing up furiously because I'm also trying to be very um, forward-thinking this year because towards the latter, you know, towards the tail end of 2017 and indeed the very start of 2018, some pretty significant things are going to be happening. For one, Nick and Ali are getting married. Uh, and, you know, I imagine we will be, Lucy and I will be quite closely involved in that wedding. Uh, and then in January, you know, Lucy and I are tying a knot. And because we've got all this kind of like grown up, adult, actual, I don't know, life stuff to deal with towards the tail end of the year. We're trying to be smart, and we're trying to do as much of the work for this year's of stories 
Now we're trying to front load everything so we have time to focus on the more, you know, mundane things like getting married later in the year. And as a result, um, I've been working like a fury since about November, finishing off all the scripts that needed doing. Like really just say, you know, pull your finger out, John. Don't write everything three months ahead. Write it a year ahead. And then you have time to focus on other things. And yeah, it's been hard and I've had to really knuckle down. But the end result is I'm typing up stories for December 2017 right now. I typed up uh, Orb is all written for the year, which is great. I've never imagined I'd be that organised. Cuckoos is all written uh, and it is 75% transcribed because I do all my work in a little handheld notebook, which I carry around. I just write it up in pencil. And now is the laborious task of, of typing it up. And I was typing up uh, chapter, what, 11 of Cuckoos yesterday. And it was, yeah, it went like a dream. And I was reading what my past self had written. Uh, this sometimes tumultuous relationship between me and my past self. And I was thinking like, yeah, he's done all right, actually. This is the editing point because there's often enough distance between me and the handwritten script for me to look at it again in the harsh light of day and see what does or doesn't work. And so we do this first edit when I type it up in, onto the computer and then we get a second edit when we come to do the lettering. But no, it's, it, it, it feels good. And also, I mean, I can feel getting more confident with it. I feel like I'm kind of really easing into the format now because... Sorry, victory sip. Because... It's a lot less wordy. And I think this came up because we, a week ago, just over a week ago, uh, Lucy, Nick and I made a trip up to Lincoln University for uh, a talk at the Students' Union. And Ali couldn't make it, sadly, because she was working. But we had a, um, we did it last year. And uh, the Comic Book Society at the university, uh, chaired by a chap called Grant, who we met at a couple of conventions, I think that's how we made the connection, asked us to come speak and do a talk about everything we do. So last year we kind of gave a general overview of everything we did as Big Punch. And that was, I mean, what would that have been? That would have been February 2016. Grief, time is flying. So yeah, we'd lost, um, we'd only just done a year of, of, extraversal at the time so now we we came back and i thought well rather than talk about the same nonsense for a second year running let's actually uh let's talk about something a bit different so i suggested that we actually go a little bit more in depth into our process like how we how we make stories and you know nick had some awesome uh kind of works in progress from seven string volume three currently being released on tapas you should check it out every thursday uh, plug, plug, plug. And I, you know, brought up some stuff to show how I go from notebook to screen and, you know, the process of bringing a story to life. And I think one of the things I, I, I said at the talk was, as I've been doing, the longer I do this, and I guess the more comics I work on and the more comics I read, I've become a lot more comfortable in saying less which i think is which i i found quite interesting i didn't realize i was doing it but you know when you do look back in on something you wrote several months ago and you can 
try and be objective about it, you notice things. And I think case in point, if I look back to some of the very first, very first stories I did, be it, uh, oh, I don't know, my kind of abortive early attempts at writing a comic called Dark Force, or even, you know, book one of Afterlife Inc. Uh, I did a couple of stories for an American American anthology called uh, Uniques. Uh, Yeah, and it was almost like, it's almost like I was saying to myself, I am Reiterman, and you have to see Reiterman in every panel. So very wordy. It's a lot of dialogue. Possibly too much dialogue and possibly too much kind of... Because it's okay to have a wordy script. I mean, crying out loud, Brian Michael Bendis has been trading on that for years, for better or worse. But sometimes there's necessary dialogue and there's unnecessary dialogue. And I think I was, because of a lack of confidence, I was compensating. I was putting more dialogue in, in the hope that having people waffle would disguise any failings in my story. I think that was my kind of, you know, dazzle them with, you know, the surface layer stuff and they won't notice any fundamental flaws. As I've been doing this longer, it's like I was typing up a cuckoo's script yesterday and there are at least four pages of silence in it. But I looked at it and I thought, you're not losing anything. It's like, surely this is what comics are at their core. Like, it's telling a story with sequential pictures. And it's like, despite there being no silence, it doesn't feel empty. We can tell that so much is happening. We can see how characters act, how they feel, how the things happening to them are driving the story forward. And it wasn't like I needed to stand on a soapbox with a megaphone and a funny hat, I kind of scream, look at me, I'm the writer. It felt okay to step back, which of course is great, certainly in a collaborative thing, because Nick is as much a partner and a creator of Cuckoos as I am. And I guess it's the beauty of our, you know, the love that dare not speak its name, this creative bromance in that I do feel more confident in stepping back. I feel I have less to prove in service of telling a good story. So that's been that's been incredibly satisfying. I mean, um, as a contrast, I mean, I am loving, uh, and I think there's like an Eric Larson, I think it's Eric Larson, there's an Eric Larson quote saying, if a comic you're working on right now isn't your favourite comic, then you're doing something wrong. And I think that, you know, that's definitely proving true because I'm having such a blast writing Orb. I'm having such a good time writing cuckoos and of course lucy's taken the lead on 99 sorgs but i now i'm now kind of just the supporting writer i just kind of help out and occasionally make tyler like uh, lucy's very good at getting elsie's dialogue but in 99 sorgs she's like i can't be stupid enough to do tyler and she goes john i need you to step in and idiot up tyler can you do that i was like yes i can that is my calling. So that's apparent, that's apparently my big involvement. And I think Tyler has a very particular voice, which I I I feel a lot of sympathy towards. Like again, going on a massive tangent, but for me, Tyler is I love Tyler because he's flawed and he knows it. I think it'd be all too easy to write him as just a kind of bungling comedic idiot. I mean it's a trope we've well, they're very familiar with the idea of, oh, you know, here's your, here's your hero, but he's not really a hero. He's just a buffoon, but he somehow gets through with luck. It's like, that's not Tyler. 
Tyler is a bit of an idiot and he makes a lot of mistakes, but he realises it and he's kind of tor tormented by it because he wants to be better. And I think he's kind of realising that maybe he can't, like maybe he'll never be the hero. Maybe he'll never be as brilliant as he would like to be. And I think his journey is kind of learning to be okay with that because, you know, he is a good friend to Elsie and he is quietly heroic in his own little way. It's just not the way he kind of imagined. So I guess for me personally, you can tell, I can tell that I'm doing something right with Extraversal because it means a lot to me and I'm starting to deeply care about these characters. Um, someone asked at the talk we gave, um, you know, when did you, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of when did you realise you loved your characters or when did you realise you'd kind of like really, really started to care for them? And I think for me, it's the moment you realise you don't, you don't want to leave them, but you know you have to. And there's a, always a certain, I think there, there has to be, there always has to be a certain maudlin, bittersweet element to storytelling. Because even if it's the happiest story in the world, it will eventually end. And you, you know, you could have the most wonderful time with these characters in this world, but eventually you have to leave. Because if you don't, it invalidates the story. Like the story has to have an ending for the beginning and the middle to have make it to, you know, to make any sense and by yeah if you don't have an exit strategy then almost what's the point it has to be brilliant and radiant and it has to burn and then it has to to end and i th i think you know that's why i feel like we're doing something right with with these stories because I'm going to be heartbroken when it all ends. And I know there will come a point when we say goodbye to these people. And I know we will say goodbye to some of them sooner than others. And that's that's really hard. You've, it's the responsibility and, I guess, the guilt of knowing what you're going to do to these characters in the service of the story. Because, you know, it's always in service of the story. And I guess unlike real people who don't have the luxury of lives follow a strict narrative these people you know these characters are are creatures of narrative and there has to be a beginning a middle and an end but for the time being i'm having so much fun working on these scripts I, it feels more i feel more confident i feel more assured in what i'm doing we had a, a chap say and often joke we like to joke that orb is the um the unloved sibling of extraversal we, um, it's like when Nick and I get together, we make cuckoos and we like to think it's this perfect fusion of Nick's incredible, amazing kind of bombastic colors and action and, and just visual prowess. And then my kind of dry nonsense, uh, high, high concept ideas. And then when we're separated, Nick makes the wall which is also returning this year, which is nothing but this kind of glorious aerial ballet of the most improbable comics gymnastics you can imagine. And I make Orb, which is nothing but meaningful people talking in rooms and staring at each other. There was a Penny Arcade strip uh, several years ago where um, Gabe and Tycho, the uh, artist and writer, fell out 
And then for the next couple of strips, they each produced a comic without the other. And Gabe's one looked beautiful, but had absolutely no dialogue. And uh, Tycho's one was like Mr. Comma's Adventures in Punctuation Land. And it was nothing but a treatise to the glories of the English language. And yeah, I can definitely see some similarities there. But I love Orb to bits. And I don't know what that says about me, but clearly I've always just wanted to make deep sci-fi melodramas. But I'm trying to counteract some of the uh, cerebralness of it in that this is why I'm so excited for this year because it's a combat orb in particular in particular it's going to be a combination of this really kind of insane action there's a lot of action in orb three it is basically something we've been waiting for for a while it's a great big battle over the ocean between the orb and a couple of paragons and at the same time we are juxtaposing these different time frames and stepping back into the past of Paragon 4, we learn about the origins of the Paragons and everything that happened to make this odd little world like it is. And, you know, it's weird. Like, uh, I feel uh, if no one if no one liked Orb, I would at least be happy that I'd made it because I love it. And I think, you know, they always say, like, make stories for yourself, but it's nice if people appreciate it. But, yeah, it, I'm just happy it exists. But we had a guy at... Um, we had a chap uh, say at our presentation that Orb was his absolute favourite and he loved it and he thought it was amazing. And I was like, thank you, sir. Goldstar, you've made it worthwhile because if only one person loves it, I still feel like it's a job well done. But hey, I'm joking because I know people, people have come up and said they really like Orb and I think it's going to be paying off like very soon as well. So thank you for your patience in letting, us, letting me set up this incredibly weird world but for all the fun i've been having on kind of working on extraversal and indeed building up to what is coming in 2018 which is something that we've been building to since day one of extraversal and we've sowed seeds in the background and now it's finally paying off like year three year three 2017 is the year where this all comes together and kind of suddenly you see what we, but you see, hopefully we'll see the promise of what we're doing by having this multiverse in one magazine. But at the same time, I was finishing off the uh, final script work on Afterlife Inc. Volume 4, which is currently in production. And we took a bit of a hit over Christmas, just because it's Christmas and you always lose a bit of time. So I have to say we're slightly behind schedule, but it's still coming along nicely. And David is powering through the pencils for the remaining chapters on the book. Mike, you know, my boy, he's all kind of lined up. He's ready to start inking. And Verity, well, Verity is a superhuman force of nature when it comes to both art and colouring. I mean, in terms of Orb, she, I mean, in this issue, issue nine in particular, it's just some of the best work she's ever done for us. It is astounding and uh, an utter testament to giving your artists freedom because I'd kind of outlined certain things in the script. She'd taken an idea, like a throwaway idea, run with it in an entirely new direction and then presented this artwork, which was just utterly astounding. And I'm like, this is good grief. This was this was not what I was expecting, but it is so much better than I could have hoped for. And Verity's like that. She's just so reliable and insanely talented. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're all slightly in awe of Verity. And uh, yeah, and she's doing amazing colouring work on, I think, Volume 4, Man-Made God as well. So we've got three chapters out to uh, the backers, and I'm 
we're, we're working on chapter four as we speak. Uh, so it is still in production. We just took a little bit of a, you know, things just got a little bit held up over over Christmas. And um, I'll be explaining to, hopefully, my very understanding Kickstarter backers um, that, you know, we're running a little behind, but hopefully people will bear with me because it's still going to happen. Like this train can't stop now and we are making good progress. I think we're going to have a little bit of a hold up and then it's suddenly going to accelerate again. So we're doing okay. But um, in contrast, I was doing some final tweaks on, on you know, a script for the remaining bits. And the difference in working on those as opposed to working on, say, cuckoos was quite striking. And I do remember that quote uh, from before. You know, if a comic you're working on right now isn't your favourite comic, then you're doing something wrong. And after I think it was harder work, which is not to speak ill of after I think, because I love, 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 love that world to bits. Like after I think changed my life, it, it actually started me down this path. So it will forever hold a very special place in my heart. But um, it was harder work. And I, I, I was thinking about it and thinking, why isn't this as much fun as working on Cuckoos? And I think, I, you know, running it through my head, and I think it was simply the weight of expectation. Like running a Kickstarter is stressful. And this, this one has been the least stressful out of all of them. And even then it was still, you know, a bit of hard work. Just, and and I, I think it's simply that I don't want to let people down. And I, the, the beauty of Kickstarter is, you know, you can essentially pre-order stuff. You can uh, fun, uh, fund things in advance to, you know, make stuff you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford in one kind of lump sum. And, you know, uh, Kickstarter has completely facilitated that. It's wonderful. Uh, the only downside is you then need to live with the knowledge that a lot of people put their their faith in you. They put their money behind you and now you have to deliver. And I am so painfully, painfully aware of not wanting to disappoint anyone. Like, And also I'm wanting to deliver a, a product which is of, you know, good quality. Um, so yeah, I think that's the only thing. I'm very conscious of doing it right. Whereas I guess maybe in Cuckoos, I feel a little freer. Anyway, uh, it does... You know, it's going to be beautiful. And this is just like a little mental hurdle that I need to get over. And once I've done that, we're still going to have a damn, damn fine book at the end of it. I'm very proud of it. And it's, yeah, I was thinking about it. Like, it's, it's a start. I've always talked about book four being like the start of something big for after, I think. I think I've said this so many times before that I won't bore you with the full story now, but I always had a story, I always had a storyline in mind for After I Think. It was always going to be the rise and fall of After I Think. It was going to be the beginning, the middle, and a definitive end to the series. Now, life took me down some strange paths I wasn't really expecting, and I ended up making different stories to that original plan. I... Uh, I made one book, which turned into two, which turned into three. So Dying to Tell, Near Life and Lifeblood were never part of our original plan. And with, and with Man Made God, it was always like, haha, now is the time to start on those original stories. I've got an experience. I feel better. I'm a stronger writer. I can now do those stories justice. 
And now I'm entering those stories again, uh, that original plan. Uh, but it's like, but I'm a different person. I'm, uh, I've changed a lot. My, you know, my life has changed me. And it was interesting to look at it and think, is it actually going to be as long as it once was? Because it need to be as long as it once was. Um, I suspect I may be a bit more efficient now. Like, could could I tell it in a shorter space of time and make it and make it really good? Like, would there be padding? It's and you know I think this is uh, perfectly uh, epitomised by some of the mysteries which have been building in the background. And I know at the end of Man Made God, there are going to be a couple of mysteries which were going to be left a bit more in the background, like a bit more subtle, just to kind of stew. And I was chatting with Nick about it, and because he's doing something very similar with Seven String Volume 4, and we were saying, if we were, if we were a big publisher and we were putting out you know stories monthly it wouldn't be so much of an issue because you wouldn't have to wait that long between installments and you know you could afford to not talk about something for a few issues because it wouldn't be that long before you know it picks up and that subplot would always be kind of bubbling in the background but due to a very strange industry and a very strange kind of model of producing comics, which we're all still very dependent on as an industry. Um, making comics on an indie level takes a long time, and it is expensive. And if we're going to keep doing it, which I certainly intend to, mm. sorry, more coffee, then I've been thinking very hard about being smarter about it. And if it's going to take me this long to get after, I think, book five out, then I need to, I can't, beat about the bush you know I people are gonna lose interest so I if I have these mysteries I can't be coy about them I need to be a bit more I need to be a bit more overt I need to start bringing them forward I need to start thinking about resolving them like I don't want to be doing this when I'm 70 you know although I'd like to say I'd have more time on my hands but then again I've had a week off work and I've filled it with nothing but comic work and so clearly time management is not my thing but yeah, so that was a big, that was a very interesting thing and, and kind of realising, what am I waiting for? I just I just need to crack on with this. But the exciting thing, the really exciting thing, has been planning for after, I think, book five. And tellingly, you know, talking about that original plan written way back in 2007, oh my grief, like written 10 years ago. Yeah, so, you know, the crazy thing about going back to a plan written 10 years ago is that, yeah, without even realising it, book five is going to be completely different. Book five is going to be a little return to the anthology format, which kind of made Dying to Tell and Near Life what they were. A very interesting thing has been the ever-changing manner in which we deliver the Afterlife Inc. stories. I mean, the first two books were made up of short stories, with different artists because that was the only way I could fund and produce, you know, a comic of that of that nature. Like it was expensive. And I could never get enough money together in one go to fund, say, a twenty-two page comic. Now, when I got to Lifeblood, which we kickstarted and we did as one big book, um, I still did it in chapters. 
I did it in 24 page chapters. And that was me kind of priming myself thinking, I want to reach a point where After I Think is released as, you know, a monthly floppy, you know, where After I Think is just on, on the same kind of stands as any other comic I, I grew up loving in a comic shop. And the same goes for Man Made God. Like, it, we're doing it as one book, but we're releasing it in digital chapters to our Kickstarter backers of um, 22 pages. But the thing is, doing a 22-page comic is really expensive. Like, that's a, that is a big chunk of comic. And also, like, if you're only going to release it in a 22-page you know, chunk, and you've got to fund it, and you've got to produce it, there's going to be a big gap between getting issues out. So I feel like I've come full circle again, because when I start making book five, I don't want it to take two or three years to do like this book has done. I don't, you know, and I, and I don't want to have to keep turning to Kickstarter to fund it, you know, these books are really expensive. And you know, Kickstarter is not this endless pot of gold you can keep turning to. I worry that as a community, people are going to, you know, as a community of creatives, people are going to get sick of it. I worry that we're approaching some kind of peak crowdfunding thing where suddenly everyone is running one and people just can't, you know, stand it. I, I wonder if we're seeing a slight backlash on that now. I mean, there's certainly so many projects on Kickstarter. It's getting a lot harder to stand out if you don't have some kind of... USP, and I, I think part of the problem is, in response to that, things are becoming more gimmicky. It becomes less about what is what is your story, how good is your story, and more a case of what is your hook. I, I think we're seeing a lot of, just in general now, this is me getting on my angry soapbox, but I think we're seeing a lot of stories which are almost meant to be forgettable. It's a kind of story where it's meant to be described to you by your colleague at work. It's like, hey, what did you what did you do last night? Someone goes, oh, I, I watched a film. And you go, oh, what was it about? And we go, oh, it was really cool. And they give you the hook. And you're like, yeah, that does sound cool. But then you never go see it. And I, I think we're seeing a lot of stuff like that, where it lives and dies by the pitch. And hey, having a successful pitch is one thing. But I think it's like, you've still got to make a story that people care about. Um, it's becoming very fast foody, very kind of let's have a snack when what we really need is a meal and you know it'll come round again it always does I mean these things move in circles uh, but yeah I, I think decent characters and a decent storyline are never going to go out of fashion uh, I just think you know our superficial tastes have changed slightly and yeah and hence why simply having a great idea is not a you know, having what you think is a lovely story, what I think is a lovely story, is not going to equal, equate to automatic success on Kickstarter. So you can't keep turning back and expecting it to solve all your problems. So if I'm going to make book five, I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? And how can I be smart about it where I don't need to rely on people and I can generate a community of Afterlife, Afterlife Inc. fans who are more engaged with the book on a regular basis rather than kind of picking it up every couple of years. So I have made a new Afterlife I think website. And when Man Made God is finished, we will be serializing it on the website. Now, I was always, I never really wanted to go down the webcomic route, but I think the more I look at it, the more I realize that actually that's where the smart, that's the smart way of getting a story out there. Like the English comic book, the British comic book scene 
has primarily lived off conventions. You know, we go to a convention, we sell a load and, you know, we make fans who we then don't see for another year. Whereas I think of like primarily American webcomics, which are, you know, where a lot, you know, it seems to be the real kind of scene for it. You get these kind of webcomic celebrities where you will love a comic, you will follow it, you will visit the website to read it three times a week. And then when you go to a convention, it's less like, hey, who are you? Oh, you make a comic. That's cool. It's more like, oh, hey, I read your webcomic. I absolutely love it. And can I buy a book? And I, I think that's what we want to do. And I, also for my own peace of mind, I mean, Nick has discovered this as well. Because Nick needs time to make a book and he's already drawing so much. Like we, we've said it time and time again, my biggest resource is money. Because if I have cash, I can pay artists to work on the book and we can get stuff done quicker. Nick's biggest resource is time. Because he's an artist, he just physically needs to sit down and do the work. And he has so many other demands on his time, particularly Big Punch stuff. So... He was worried about it was going to take him years to make Seven String Volume 3. And instead, he's now releasing it as a webcomic. And he's getting a page done a week. And he's saying he's loving it. And because he's gaining new fans and people can read it and people and Seven String fans can feel engaged all year round. And he, yeah, and, and it's just helping him because relentlessly, uh, unrelentlessly, <laughs> unrelenting, oh, too many relentlesses. Uh, the, the book is getting made week by week. And I think that's what I'm going to have to do with After I Think. I'm going to, for book five, I'm going to be producing fewer pages more regularly rather than trying to do one big, massive, ch- book-sized chunk of content in one go. And I was thinking to myself, why am I so slaved to the idea of 22-page stories. Like, that's a model which the comic industry is struggling with anyway. Like, it, it's it's being enti- it's so bizarre. The entire comic book industry floats on this notion of producing 22-page floppies every month. And yet, graphic novels are the ones which are killing, like, uh, webcomics are the ones which are making a difference. You know, it's, it's unsustainable. I mean, Jack Kirby was possibly a freak of nature or some kind of superhuman Kirby Crackle god sent to save us because he was just that good in that he could produce a 22-page comic a month, several 22-page comics a month. And that's become the industry standard ever since. We just assume that that is the way forward. I know Scott Kurtz uh, said something very interesting where he said, he, you know, there's this idea of making it in comics, this idea that the highest ideal you could strive towards would be working for Marvel or DC or I don't know, even Image. Like these are things which I've, you know, been was pursuing for the longest time, thinking, you know, I won't really have made it in comics until I've got to that stage. But you no, know, Scott Kurtz said he had a lot of friends who did that. And he just saw them kind of burning themselves out, like working so hard to, you know, to to hit those standards, to to hit that production schedule. You know, and and then for what? I've had friends who worked on quite high-class image books who haven't really seen a penny out of it, who, you know, don't really see any, wouldn't really see any pennies until the graphic novel sales came about. I mean, 
we work with a number of artists. Um, we are a small company. We presumably, one would imagine, can't pay rates that are comparable with Marvel. I've no idea what Marvel pays, but we try to be fair to everyone and we try to pay people promptly. And we've had freelancers working for us who said, well, I work for you. I also work for big company number one, big company number two. I like you because you pay us. And I'm like, well, don't they pay you? So yeah, but you know, not for several months or so. We just, you know, people say, hey, I've completed the work. And I go, great, send us the invoice and we pay them. And, you know, it may not be as much, but we're regular. And I think that works in our favor. Where was I even going with this? Oh, yeah, the industry is fundamentally flawed and I have no idea how to fix it. But I am thinking for after I think book five, why am I slave to that format when if I wanted, could I not just tell a hundred page story? Why do I even need those chapter breaks other than as a kind of, you know, just a little milestones to keep me honest and to keep cliffhanger moments. Why don't I go for a long form story? Or even, and certainly with one I'm planning in after I think volume five, which I really want to be uh, kind of like um, the White Album, as in it's going to be a home for tons of random stories, while at the same time having a, a strong central kind of narrative. So I want to kind of marry these two notions of having the longer stuff, the longer kind of chapter format stories which are driving the major plot forward but then having all these kind of ancillary character pieces around it which at the time may seem like they're unconnected but actually have big character moments and big implications for the series ahead and all this kind of stuff and I I'm really excited about it and I but the beauty of maybe freeing up the format it might be a bit scary because it feels like you don't have that safety net but at the same time it means that you can uh well, it means that you could be flexible. Like, if I want to just do a two-page, a two-page story featuring one of these characters and a different artist in the middle, I can. You know, if I want to just... And then if I want to have, like, a 20-page action-packed story driving the plot forward, I can also do that as well. I mean, I really enjoyed working with all those different artists, and we had a lot of... had a lot of very, you know, just wonderful people who have contributed to the book so far. It'd be nice to try and get them back. And also, it'd be nice to try and work with some new people because we had so many people asking, you know, wanting to be a part of it. And I've had to say, sorry, you know, we don't have anything at the moment. You know, sorry, we are, what are we doing? You know, we, we're doing these long stories and we have a single art team across all of them. And as much as I love that, and as much as like there's that little child childhood bit of me, which is sad that maybe that is unobtainable now, certainly or unsustainable, like we could do it, but would it be the right way to do it when we have to accept that we're operating on an indie level? And if we want to succeed, as in so many things, we have to be smart about it and we have to be willing to change and try new things because you can't just keep banging your head against that wall and, and expecting miracles to happen. I don't know, maybe if you hit your head enough. Oh, I don't know, I'm rambling. Well, this was going, this, you know, this, podcast went in directions I was entirely entirely unexpected I uh, I am looking at my reflection in the window right now I have the most incredible head of hair you would believe um I am it, it looks ridiculous and I'm so happy with it like you uh, I always I never had cool hair growing up. This is my confession moment, and if any of you knew me in my youth, you will attribute that I've never had cool hair. I had a bit of a pudding bowl thing in my 
in primary school. In secondary school, I I don't even know what that was. I just had these two kind of like like the McDonald's, the golden arches on the top of my head, just these two kind of brown lumps of hair on the top of my head. It was so bizarre. Other times it was super short, which was weird because despite being shorter, it somehow made my head look bigger. They used to call me microphone head. People would kind of just walk up behind me, tap me on the back of the head and go, tasking, tasking. Like, I get it. I've always had a fat head. I physically do have a large head. I was once a, a little heavier, shall we say, and I had a particularly plump face, so that didn't help either. But um, all I ever wanted was rock sky hair. I remember in like uh, the second year of uni, I uh, I grew my hair for a year. And uh, I was expecting to have, you know, the long kind of flowing, you know, really edgy, you know, go to uni, grow your hair, pick up a guitar, just be irresistible. And uh, it didn't, it just grew out. And there's a photo of me around the time I... It used to be my diving license. Around the time I learned to dive, there's this photo of me wearing a, a weird kind of like polo shirt because that was a fashion at the time, kind of circa 2005, with just this massive head of hair, like the most incredible. It's like, um, it's about the size and dimensions of um, like a bike helmet, like a full facial kind of like <laughs> a motorbike racer helmet. And with a mullet. It was essentially a mullet. Like, it just went down at the back. I remember once at uni, uh, being woken quite early by a guy doing a delivery at the door, and put my dressing gown on a race car stairs, and I picked up a parcel, and he gave me a really odd look, and I couldn't work out why. And then when he left, I looked in the mirror, and I realised that, because I'd been sleeping on my sides, the entire sides of my head were utterly flat, like, utterly just plastered to my skull. And then I had this in- insane kind of, like, cartoons style quiff coming up the front and the most horrible mullet going down the back and I don't know why I put up with it. I went through a rather odd phase in the second year of uni where one of the housemates, she had some straighteners and I straightened my hair and suddenly, like for a moment, I had the hair I'd always dreamed of. Like, it, it I don't want to mince my words here, it was beautiful. Like, it was the most incredible rock star hair and it was everything I'd ever dreamed of. And... I know for me, I kind of had to make a decision because I was like, I could either, oh my God, this is almost poetic. I could either have the hair I'd always wanted, but have to straighten it every single day of my life, essentially living a lie. Or I uh, I could learn to love the hair I had. And you'd be pleased to know I started straightening my hair. No, you'd be pleased to know I, I relented. I stepped back from the brink and I made a decision I somehow learned to love it. I tried everything. I tried like gelling it. I, I I don't know, it was weird. But I think the turning point for me was, I want to say like five or so years ago now, I stopped shampooing my hair. I used to wash it daily. And I still do. But I just made a decision to stop using shampoo. And I can't remember entirely what prompted it. But for five years now, I've been using nothing but water on my hair. I just wet it, I just kind of, I scrub it, but yeah, no no soap at all. Because we were always told in biology class about, you know, your biofauna and flora, like just the bacteria that lives on your body naturally. And I remember my, I remember vividly my um, biology teacher in secondary school saying, she was saying, well, look at, you know, people in incredibly 
uh, rural or even uh, tribal communities in the world, you know, they don't have access to shampoo. And she said, are they dirty? She said, well, no. You're saying because, you know, you wash with water and your body has a natural community, a natural kind of ecosystem of life living on it, which, you know, doesn't make you spotless, but it's kind of self-regulating. And every time we use a shampoo, you know, we are kind of killing any of our natural, the natural life we cultivate. And uh, yeah, and she's saying like, if you can get past it, you're saying you stop using shampoo, you'll get dirty, you'll get dirtier. And, you know, for a little while you will feel horrible. But then there will be a kind of turning point and suddenly your body will recover and it will start producing its own oils, its own kind of, you know, bacteria and whatever little beasties live on you. And you'll start, it becomes cleaning and it starts cleaning itself. And I swear I didn't even have that uh, kind of smelly patch because my hair is a force of nature. Like it has broken electric razors. Uh, it, it's, it's just fantastic. It, it's, it's clogged hoovers. It, it, it's just the most incredible substance known to man. And yeah, and people can't believe it when I say, hey, look, you know, I don't, I don't use shampoo and good grief, this feels like a Laboratoire Garnier advert now. But yeah, and I've got to say it had a transformation. Like my hair has seemingly undergone some bizarre chemical or physical change where it now acts in a way it never did before. I mean, and well, I'm 30 and I've got the kind of bizarre <laughs> fringe of an angry 17-year-old and I'm very, very happy with that. It. It's ridiculous. And also when I wake up, I, I have what I like to think of as Peter Milligan hair where... You look at any character from the 80s in a comic with a massive quiff, and that's me, basically. And it, I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so un deliriously happy with my hair. And I've got a cup of coffee, so I'm pretty happy. But hey, there we go. Um, Thank you, listeners, for sitting there as I ramble in just much ridiculous fashion, like the nonsense I've talked about. Anyway, I had all kinds of anecdotes I was going to bring up as a kind of backup, but as a stream of consciousness, I think we've done all right. Ladies and gentlemen... We are Big Punch Studios. It is more than just me. It is Nick, Ali, and Lucy. And we make comics, as you may have guessed. And we make games. And we make podcasts. And if you would like to support us in doing this, we do have a patron. And if you'd like to check it out, it's www.patreon.com forward slash Big Punch Studios. You can see everything we do there. We've done a lot of work on it lately to create these awesome clubs where you can sign up and support a different one of our projects, be it extraversal, be it BP, uh, oh dear, that was awkward, be it extraversal, be it semi-screen, be it after I think. And of course, if you sign up to our highest tier of $5, you will receive a physical copy of extraversal through the post every three months. And we hope there is a whole plethora of incredible rewards to thank you for your support and to thank you for helping us do what we do, because anything, any support, it means the world and it allows us to keep making all these daft little creative projects. So, everyone, thank you for listening. Enjoy your coffee and I'll see you in two weeks' time.